Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbond on Twitter, and I'm here with uh, someone you may know from Twitter, uh, someone I know from Twitter as well, um, uh, my my friend uh, Alana, or Lana, sorry, I never know how to say that, that's one of those one of those tricky names. Um, I like Lana, personally. You like Lana? Okay, yeah. well, honestly, I have to say, whatever you like seems like the appropriate thing, but um, I Lana mean, feels like there's too many other like letters in there. Oh, like an H? Yeah, or like Maybe a W two. or something. Lana. Yeah, I never really thought of that. That's like a it's a very Jersey way of saying Lana. Yeah. Um but yeah, um uh uh you may know her at uh Mecha Poetic. Um uh she is she has been a friend of mine online for a long time and uh and I'm really happy to have her on the show because she's also a a very sort of uh interesting and as it happens, I wanted to talk to you about this uh prescient um uh gaming critic. So um Lena, thank you for being on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Yeah, of course, anytime. My my absolute pleasure. Um, so you are you are on Twitter at Mecha Poetic. Um, That's right. And you you write uh, for a number of places. I know your stuff on on uh, Rhizome, mm-hmm. uh, which is not to be confused with the uh, with the um, now uh, now infamous posting Haven uh, Rizone, uh, where where. Uh, <laughs> Don uh, Don Hughes and, and other friends of the show uh, made their made their bones. Um, Rhizome's different, but it is good. Um, it's a different like uh, flavor of dorky. <laughs> that's right. Um, it is. Uh, it, I, I like Rhizome, and I, I like your piece on Rhizome uh, particularly. So, like this was the one we talked about. We never actually uh, we never actually talked about it after you sent it to me. But the um, which is my fault. But the um, the piece you wrote called uh, "Worse Than Scabs." Uh, which yeah. is about, um, which is about like basically about the stuff everyone is now talking about. You were you were kind of ahead of the game uh, when it came to labor relations uh, and video games and the things that uh, you know GamerGate kind of presaged in terms of the way we treat people in the industry, the way the industry treats its workers. Uh, totally fascinating. So I'd love to hear what you think about that now, and also what you think about it in terms of like. A historical document, um, but also where where else do you write now? I mostly, um, I mean, when I do uh, like freelance stuff, I mostly still write at Rhizome. Okay. Um, mainly because they're they're not really a gaming 
outlet. They're more of like a new media, digital art, kind of like fine arts kind of outlet. Okay. Um, but they're interested in gaming because it's kind of like an adjacent thing. It's um, They're interested more in the uh, artistic and expressive side of like the digital arts and the technical arts, but... Okay. Um, they're also willing to let like let me just do my thing, which is what you know. Ironically, like any actual gaming outlet for the most part wouldn't let me do those things. Um, <laughs> sure. Which is why I don't really write for them a lot. Um, and the ones that I have written for in the past have pretty much invariably shuttered. Um, so when I'm not doing that, and I I because I need more uh, consistent income. I have my own website called Sufficiently Human, and I have a Patreon for that. And uh, tell I us like, the Patreon at the top and the bottom of the show. I would say. Okay, well, it's Patreon. I think slash my name, so Lana Polanski. Um, that is Polanski with a Y. Yes, with a Y. Uh, it's Russian. Don't ask me about it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's only fair that you not ask someone with the last name of Polanski about. Just their don't last ask name me about it. it. I don't want to talk about it. Completely reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I'm a strong Slavic woman with a low center of gravity. Oh, she'll take you out. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, okay, I got a little bit derailed there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I I had, like, a bit of a uh, – this is kind of a circuitous answer, but I, I got – I got I had, like, a little bit of a breakdown, like, a little while back. Mm-hmm. I had – some of it was, like, I had, like, medical – like, a, a just, like, a sequence of medical ailments – that sure. compounded on each other. And also I was just like really burnt out by writing and by the industry and just everything. So I had um, a hard time like keeping up with it. So I have like a kind of a big backlog of stuff to write, which I am like slowly, like painstakingly making my way through. So to be able to maintain a stable income and keep producing content and like give myself the time to actually like make up for the time that I lost when I wasn't writing. Um, I also recently just started streaming. Oh, cool. Um, so that's called the Freaky Museum, um, and it's basically just kind of what I do when I write, which is put the spotlight on, like, the fringe, the art side of games, like, the, the fringe alternative side of games, like, uh, not just, like, uh, indie stuff, like the capital I indie with the big studio of 40 people or whatever, but, yeah. like, the, you know, literally one person made this out of their studio apartment or something, and... Um, they don't have a lot of money and they need it. Um, so well, and you were the person who I mean, you were the person who turned me on to and I, I have a, I have a friend who, who played this game and uh, and and probably and got more frustrated with it by the end, although still recognized it as a really good game. But you were the one who turned me on to New Ice York, um, yeah. which was one of my favorite games from uh, 20, uh, 2018. So, uh, yeah, Lana knows what she's talking about when it comes to this, uh, this kind of stuff, the indie stuff. So I would. 100% recommend uh, watching her stream. I can really pick the one thing in a billion dollar industry that makes absolutely no money and run with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to me. Uh, I could I could see that being a, a very serious um, skill. I mean, it's, it's hard to justify um, a little bit to both to gamers who have a very specific idea in mind when they imagine what a good game is. Mm-hmm. And what even qualifies as a game. But then trying to explain that there are like sort of uh, class distinctions and gradations and different kinds of uh, um, approaches and schools of thought to creating like any kind of digital or technical art. Um, 
to people who aren't at all involved with that, it, that like the culture of the industry can also be a challenge. Um, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I assume that actually that's like a, that's a big challenge. Like I would say like, it seems to me that, and, and maybe, maybe you have a little more to say about this cause I don't want to, I don't want to speak, um, on something that I think you know better. Uh, but you know, what's interesting to me about what you're saying is there's like, you know, so, so a game like New Ice York, right, which mm-hmm. is like absolutely a strange game and like something you'd see on on Steam. And if you if you didn't know any better, you might make fun of or you might think it's just like you know kind mm-hmm. of a, kind of a joke or whatever. And I think like that kind of feeling about games like New Ice York come from the fact that they are um, they're not they don't fit the mold of uh, of of what you expect from. Um, I don't know, from like a video game. Like what you see when you see major studios produce video games is not something like that. Um, and in fact, like what you see when you see major studios produce video games is something like, um, I mean, it's something like, uh, 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 I don't know, a Red Dead Redemption or something where like there is a an explicit story going on uh, as yeah. opposed to sort of like a, a, a an experience at the end. And I think that like if I'm understanding you correctly, um, that tends to distance gamers from the actual form itself yeah i think um something that happens a lot with games and gamers and the industry kind of at large is that they have um anxiety um about not being taken as seriously as uh, other art forms mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Yeah, video definitely. games video games have a chip on their shoulder they're an art form that have grown up not just entirely within capitalism, like film or, or television, but entirely within the context of neoliberalism. And they're uh, from top to bottom, they're a reflection of that. Um, and you've like you've written about this. You wrote about this in the context of um, like those battle royale games. Oh yeah, right, right, right. The Fortnite yeah. article, absolutely. Um, and and some of that is intentional, and like some of it isn't. It's just sort of like um, a natural outcome of reflecting the times that you're living in. Um, but with these sort of um, fringe or alternative games, there's a lot more um, direct creative vision. It's not something that's done with, uh, like, in terms of, because a lot of, uh, like, major studio games are, like, sort of designed by committee, and they're trying yeah. to kind of be all things to all people. Um, but with these smaller games, you get a more concentrated vision of something, and it's not so much that they are or are not telling a, a story or, like, a straightforward narrative, Um but it's more that they're more willing to take risks with the medium and and um, use it to um, deliberately express things that other games might be expressing unintentionally mm-hmm. and actually make a comment on them. And that gives me as a critic a lot more to talk about. Absolutely. No, and I think, like, you know, there's... It reminds me of, like, when you play a game, like... When you play, like, sort of a more indie game or, or, or something, you know, for lack of a better word... Um, like the things, the things I notice when I play those games are basically like okay, um, I will notice that there is often explicit, <clears throat> explicit language about and like commentary on material conditions in the world or right. material conditions of gaming or something in a way that yeah. you don't necessarily get. I mean, maybe you get it. You get it to a certain degree in games like. Um, I would say you get it to a certain degree in games like um, uh, uh, like Undertale or something like that. Right? Oh sure, like, yeah, yeah. But like Undertale is in a, in and of itself like very very close to that kind of um, that kind of uh, uh, um, outsider game. Yeah, I think actually 
and I've been saying this, that the best, like, uh, big studio game, a game with a budget that's, like, the best game of the last 10 years, it's not, I mean, I love Breath of the Wild, it's not Breath of the Wild, it's not Fortnite, it's not any of that stuff, it's Nier Automata. Okay, yeah. That's the best game of the last 10 years, bar none. Um, that isn't, like, you know, one of those little freaky little fringe games that I happen to like. Um, <laughs> but you can tell when you play it, not just from a, a narrative and thematic standpoint, but also from an aesthetic and design standpoint, that uh, Yoko Taro and the people who were involved in making it have been paying attention to what's Definitely. been going on in the indie scene. Um, and they've been looking at what works. Um, and they've been looking at um, how to apply some of those tendencies to a larger scale production. Um, so you have all sorts of stuff going on. You have, like, text... There's a text adventure element in the game. There's um, all yeah. kinds of really strange, abstruse, and abstract imagery that's going on. There's pretty some pretty on-the-nose fucking symbolism. But, I mean, that is still, like... <laughs> yeah. It's still running circles around most other games of, you know, the same budget. I would agree. And I think, like, the other thing about Nier Automata is that it clearly... Like one of the things it does so well is it takes it takes like the lessons that um, that Yukotaro learned from things like Drakengard and mm-hmm. the original Nier, and instead of like instead of I feel like sometimes what these um, what studios will do when they learn lessons like that is they will just make it so that their next game is I don't know somehow more overly determined or uh, you know somehow more. Um, specific so that it won't have to, um, you know, deal with the ambiguity. So, like, the, yeah. the complaint about Nier was the combat didn't work very well and the story was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of looking at that and saying, like, okay, let's make the story normal and make the combat better, what yeah. Yokotaro said was, like, okay, well, let's make the combat better, but, like, totally just stay with the same kind of idea of story. Like, we're going yeah. gonna, to gonna mess with that same basic idea again. Right. Um, and I think that's cool because it, it, it focuses on this idea of, like, you know, video games aren't always the consumer's uh, plaything, and also video games are meant to tell a story. It, well, some video games are, and when they do try to tell a story, they should just like they should not be embarrassed of that narrative. And I think you know, Nier Automata, yeah. for better or for worse, is not embarrassed of its narrative. I also think that there's a thing that happens with, like I said, that chip on the shoulder that that gamers and and game industry types have about mm-hmm. the cultural importance of games and trying to sort of overstate um like how meaningful and powerful and impactful and whatever they are yeah um i would agree sort of like the but even like the academics like the eric zimmerman's of the world talking about how it's like the medium of the 21st century or whatever the fuck people get really really intense like especially in the academic field about like how serious and new and like oh buddy don't even get me started like i was part because i'm sort of coming at at it kind of from outside academia a little bit or like my background in academia is a little different because I didn't sure. like study game design or anything like that I, I'm i like a liberal arts kid that went to journalism school yeah I mean, um, you, you and I have a lot in common that way um, in that I did not study game design I just I got an English degree <laughs> yeah but it's when you start to see the um, potential that games have as like an expressive medium um, when you're coming at it from say like a literary standpoint it's interesting the ways in which video games tell stories to me that's different from the way books tell stories. Mm-hmm. I don't need games to tell stories in the way that books do. I can read books for that. I think that there are a lot of gamers who want games to be respected in the way that film is respected, and they think that the way to do that is to make games like you make films. Right. Um, 
No, I agree. They have to look like films, they have to sound like films, and they have to tell stories like films. But I would even go even further than that, is that people in the film industry have a chip on their shoulder about being taken as seriously as literature. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people think that the way you have to make films is how you write books. Right. And it's not true at all. Um, (laughs) And every time somebody comes around, like a Cronenberg or a John Waters or a David Lynch, who sort of bucks those a lot of those trends and and treats film like it's you know not separate from those other art forms but at least discreet um and has its own conventions and it has its own um like unique attributes that in the way that it presents information there are a lot of people who see that and they go i don't know what the fuck this is i can't parse parse this and i think a similar thing happens with games what happens with games like near automata it happens with the weird games that I'm talking about where people look at this and go, not only can I not parse this, I don't even recognize this as being a game. Yeah, and that's that's something that I've noticed a lot where, like, it's not just – this sort of kind of blew my mind when I was thinking about it initially because it's not just – like, you saw it a lot early on when there was that, uh, that push against walking simulators where people were yeah. like, well, this isn't even a game. Like, yeah. Gone Home is not even a game, would be what people would say or whatever. And, like, yeah. I, you know. Whatever. Ri- I don't care. <laughs> I've written on Gone Home. I have my opinions on Gone Home. Uh, mm-hmm. The things I like and don't like about Gone Home do not uh, correspond with it being a game or not a game. Exactly. And I actually, um, I, I also have a lot to say about that. Because, um, again, I was, like, I took a lot of weird fire for this. Um, because it wasn't about really Gone Home, but sort of. Precursor games, that game, uh-huh. the, 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 like indie games that sort of came before that sort of big boom yeah. um, that I was writing about. Um, so this is like 2008. No, it's not 2008. It's like 2010, something like that. Uh, probably later on. But like these are the sort of era of games that I was looking at was from the indie boom. Okay. Um, and so I, ha- I was in a weird situation with a game like Gone Home and some of these other games that... I actually didn't like a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't enjoy a lot of them. I thought a lot of them were boring and plotting and cloying and and, tr- sure. and just incredibly try hard and I'm not and I'm not like anti, you know, feelings. I'm not like you know, I'm not going to start complaining about SJWs and care lords and anything like that. I just think that the way that a lot of those themes were presented in those games was um uh like kind of hit you over the head with it. Sure. In a way that I didn't like. Um, and I felt like it was a little condescending to the player. Um, yeah. Well, I felt that way specifically about the, the queer politics in, in Gone Home. And like, uh, I, like my, my, I, I mean, I wrote an article on it that I'm not going to be able to, to like, to give a good account of. It's a bunch yeah. of site if anyone cares about it, but like, uh, it, I, I think it went well, but like the, the argument that I have about Gone Home is that like, it doesn't really do anything super interesting. With, no. Like it basically just makes the. It makes the reader feel good about themselves. Like it makes mm-hmm. the person. That's it what it you... is. It's 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 a, a lot of sort of liberal pantomime mm-hmm. of queer narratives, which I found really frustrating. One as a queer person, and two as somebody who is very invested in um, work that is being created by independent creators who don't have a lot of clout, who don't yeah. have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of status in society and who are using games as a medium to express themselves, who are telling their own queer narratives. Right, um, yeah. And who don't fucking get anywhere. Um, and who, I, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about how sort of, I mean, I hate to say it, but how, like how Gamergate kind of shook out and how 
like the aftermath of A, the indie boom, and B, Gamergate was that there were a lot of um, people who were poor people, queer people, women, people of color, etc., Mm-hmm. who were sort of driven out of the industry or just burnt out and left. And the people who got to make any money off of that whole indie boom scene were largely speaking people who already, I mean, it was a lot of white cis men, first of all. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of people who, I mean, it wasn't entirely that, but it was people who were either very good at being grifters or who had some money, who had some capital. Like it was people who were who were never really struggling in the first place for the most part, not entirely, sure. but for the most part. Yeah. Um, and it, it just rewarded the same kind of uh, boy geniuses that the tech industry always ends up rewarding. And the people who did a lot of the legwork to make that happen, which just kind of disappeared. Um, yeah. No, that, that that seems completely, and I mean, unfortunately, correct. Um, yeah, I think, like, the, the thing that always stood out to me about, about the indie boom is, like, it, I guess not necessarily, like, Okay, like this is you know this is who wins and this is who loses because I've never I was I wasn't enough in video games and especially not enough into indie games to know at the time like I knew that Gamergate was going on and it sort of just like vexed me I wasn't writing about games at that mm-hmm. point it was all kind of confusing to me but the the thing I will say is it is very it was very clear to me at the time that like the games coming out that were suddenly these like new indie darlings were not particularly like. I guess I'd say we're not particularly like the special necessarily in terms of like the stories yeah. they were telling in so far as like, so when I talk about gone home, the thing that bothers me most about it is the fact that it is like, it's a story that basically is completely designed to make you in 2008 or what was it? 2012. I can't remember what it came up, but, um, yeah, I just everything that happened to me like past the last weekend of my life is kind of just a gray blur. So yeah, no, that's important. <laughs> um, it's important to always forget it. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's like it's it, it's you're put into the situation in 1995 where like your parents are like a gay daughter and everyone's freaked out and basically you can be like, well, I am a very good liberal subject and I think it's okay. Like, yeah, I think it's totally fine to be gay and yeah. there's no risk. Like it's not really like you. <laughs> You're not yeah. taking any sort of serious risk there in, in you know, siding with your, well, spoilers for Gone Home, siding with your sister. Um, you yourself have, like, a, you know, the only reasonable option at the end of that game is to say, like, oh, it's okay that she's gay, and I hope that, like, she's happy with her girlfriend. Like, that's, like... Yeah, it's a very, um, like, I think it's trying to be subtle in a strange way, but, but but what it what it ends up doing is that instead of subtlety, what you end up with is just sort of like an a diluted kind of just um, like limp experience. It's it's not mm-hmm. subtle. It's limp. Yeah. Yeah. It's toothless. That's what you end up with. It is toothless. I agree with you completely. And I think like the one thing about it that really always vexed me was, um, I mean, the fact that like it. There's so like the I, I do this all the time. This is like a, a total crutch in my criticism, but fortunately, no one ever reads enough of my criticism to know this. So I keep tricking people. Um, but one of the things that I always do is I always think about the last part of a game, like the last moment in a game is super interesting to me, mm-hmm. um, or the last moment in a story or whatever. <laughs> like it's right. just, it, it's all like I'm fascinated by like the end of things, and I think they always change stuff. Like I did a paper on uh, Franzen's The Corrections, where I say like. This book seems like it could go in a good direction with capital until you get to the end. And then mm. it becomes completely clear 
that it does has no interest in doing it. And that was like my whole thing. It was like, you know, yeah. once, once you get to the end here, you're going to realize there's nothing, nothing going on. Um, I had, I had a, a, a kind of the opposite feeling about Nier Automata. Okay. Someone like yelled at me on Twitter because I haven't played the first Nier. Um, I've only played Automata. I haven't either. And actually a listener, uh, my buddy, my buddy, uh, shout out, shout out to SourceForce, uh, a good friend of the podcast, um, who, who gifted it to me. Um, he gifted me the, the, um, the Xbox 360 version, so I will I will be playing that for sure. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to try it. Uh, but I yeah. never played it before near Automata. Yeah, no, and so knowing some of this, like, so there was I made like an offhand comment about it, and someone kind of yelled at me for getting some details wrong, basically. <laughs> Whatever, <Okay>. yeah, <laughs> and um, it was just like a weird, unnecessarily hostile Twitter engagement, you know. Um, and, Naturally. And, but but everything almost everything the person said to me that filled in these back details of the first near actually kind of reinforced my interpretation of automatic even more mm-hmm. because it's a game where you're you're wondering where this is going to go and you're wondering where am I going to get a clear definition of like what the conflict is in this game and who who I should be rooting for and who I should not be rooting for and the question yeah. is incredibly vague it's it's deliberately um, very, um, I don't want to use the word abstruse again. <laughs> you have to. Um, but it, 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 it's, uh, abstract and it's very, like, um, open to interpretation. But I think the end makes a pretty good case that at the very least you're not the good guy. Yeah, I think that's um, right. And, like, yeah. if, if you, it, like, if there's any sort of benefit to your appearance in the world, it's, it's strictly as, like, a sort of side thing. Like, you're yeah. never, you're not particularly good. Uh, you might be by dint of, like, not being super effective, not be, like, not be yeah, the worst yeah, yeah. person. But, like, that's, yeah, what I, that's what I think about Automata is that it's not so much that your character is doing a good thing or is morally good um, or is fighting for any thing in particular but more that it's ineffectual and um comedically tragic yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no absolutely um I, I would actually completely agree with that i think it's weird that you got hate for that that seems like a perfectly yeah well it's because i i made a comment about elon musk stealing fan art and how like there's an irony in that considering the game sort of presupposes that the kind of hubris that's embodied by someone like Musk is maybe not necessarily like a good thing. Deeply, uh, deeply, deeply uh, unwise of you to tweet about Elon Musk. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> but uh, more, the person was more upset with me because I, um, I miss, I apparently misunderstood some aspects of the game, which may, may still, once I finally play near, I might end up agreeing, but I kind of feel like the end kind of, uh, of near in total, in, in, in totality kind of, reinforces my point even more like I don't know what to tell you I mean it's a really strange thing though so this is another thing about gaming that I find really confusing is this this insistence that any this insistence that any like account of gaming is somehow like oh yeah like we did the we did the thing where now um uh in order to understand this game, you actually need to understand every single thing that, not just in a series anymore, but every single thing that someone like Yoko Taro has mm-hmm. produced. And, like, to me, the whole point of Nier Automata is producing something where it's like, oh, yeah, actually, like, the this game is uh, is just about what it's about. Like, the, this yeah. game is not about, like... 
um, some long lineage of of um, issues or whatever. Like, in fact, like the the game itself, you know, the plot sort of encourages you to disconnect from a, a lineage, a canon. So to yeah, speak. no, I am furiously nodding right now. Like, <laughs> Um, so yeah, like it's weird to me that they'd be like, yeah, no, 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 like the first near, like yeah, of course there's a lineage there, and you should like, yeah. I'm I'm excited to play the game, but like, near Automata is a standalone piece. You don't. Have it to is. Play it is a standalone piece, and it's also like uh, Yoko Taro has also been pretty explicit about like his influences mm-hmm. for like the mm-hmm. uh, universe of near, which is like it's rooted in very real geopolitical conflict. Oh, okay, um, I didn't know that. It's, That's really... it was he was inspired by nine eleven. Okay. To make it. Um, his, his comments on it are um, a bit strange, which I guess is uh, to be expected. I mean, it is um, a Pitaro, yeah. Yeah, but he, he, he looks at it from the, the concept, um, from the angle of, like, of it being sort of an ideological battle in mm. the grand scheme, and that the people involved in that ideological battle are not necessarily maliciously motivated, but that mm. they can't necessarily see the forest for the trees, and because of that, it's, like, um, negotiation is like an impossibility because of that. I mean, that it's, certainly seems to relate to near Automata. Yeah, um, and so there's like an interesting, like the uh, the whole thing with the robots, where they're so deeply dehumanized because the the characters that you play that are also robots, um, just a collection of um, switchboards and wires underneath the skin. Um, but they look human, so you identify with them more. Yeah. But as you play the game, you start identifying more and more with the robots. Who, yeah, who don't look human more, at all, right. Who don't look human at all, but they express a lot more humanity. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so like, I think that's, yeah, that's, I don't know, I feel like that is a, in itself a very telling element of the game. I also found that, like, the, so, like, this is spoilers for Nier Automata if you're planning on playing it, uh, so, you know, stop listening, maybe maybe skip ahead, like, ten minutes. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that struck me about about Nier was the end of the first act where the, um, where the, where, uh, not Adam and Eve, um, who were the two, basically, like, the two gods of the, the, the two sort of, like, rogue AI or, like, AI that kind of antagonized you through the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember who they were, but they were essentially Adam and Eve. Like they were essentially. If you yeah, wanted, yeah, yeah. If the you the to, little, the, this creepy little girl and. Yes. Yeah, well, no. Yeah. yeah the, well, there were the two twins. There was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, the Sephiroth twins. Yeah, the Sephiroth twins. That's yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. So like that was to me like at the end of the first act, basically, where they were like, oh yeah, so like um. You, you want to know where those aliens are that you're always fighting against, and they kind of like reveal that they're like they've been dead the whole time. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything, dead. every like anything that's not like a moose in that game is dead. Like, yeah, right. Like it's it's like oh yeah, every every single thing in the, that you that you have been fighting for or against is dead. And the yeah, the sort of like the claim there is basically so you know anything you thought you were doing in this game was a complete waste of time. Oh yeah, um, and and that's like such a good thing to present to you right at the beginning of the game right before like yeah. there's, there's like a really empowering scene where you all like get you know suited up and go fight the good fight or whatever the the game basically is like oh yeah just don't don't forget don't lose track of the fact that this was all worthless it's not not yeah it's like it's completely um a waste of time utterly worthless and yet people are well the people the the um, the androids are the androids and the yeah. robots and whatever in the game especially the the, the orhal androids are like essentially programmed to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, right. Even though they fundamentally are aware that it's completely meaningless. 
Yeah, to the point that I mean, to the point that you find out, and here's the like the ultimate spoiler, or one of the ultimate spoilers. The point you find out that like the the kind of like team you were part of was simply like a an execution loop because the the yeah. the sort of like scout of the team was was too smart and would always figure out the, the, the yeah so you would have to keep uh basically uh, erasing his memory like over and over and over and over again yeah, which was essentially like ki- killing him yeah you have yeah. to keep killing him well literally killing him and through through a lot of it like a lot of the yeah. scenes of just like choking him out and then yeah like, bring him back to life after you <laughs> but i mean you 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 kill him in the sense that like you're erasing oh yeah yeah, yeah. the the um a personality that is to be and then reinventing him yeah no time. that's right it's sort of like the star trek um uh phaser or the the teleporter problem yeah um yeah no it, i mean like someone was on the show a while ago uh i forget who it was but um i probably should remember but the uh we were we were talking about this and um we were talking about near and their point was and i thought it was a, a really good point um their point was that the um the actually near is a basically just a, a ship of Theseus. Like the whole mm. thing is a ship of Theseus, where you're like, and I mean, you, you get this at the very beginning of the game. The first, um, the first like uh, uh, side quest is is you you finding out that you have to like that you have a choice to like present a uh, someone with like a uh, I don't know like a leg that isn't there so like find the the last remaining original part they have or something like that it's really right. very dark um, but it is like it's just the ship of Theseus it's like well do they still count is that still them yeah um, and it like the whole game at a certain point is that where it's just like oh yeah does any of this still count is this still you um, yeah and you get to come up with your own answer but like Probably not is the is the old. I think it, there's a, another thing going on there too, mm. and I I think like I'm a little bit hesitant about this, but I think that there's an argument because okay, so you know how there's the two big robots and they're named Marks and Angles. Yes, I do Pretty know about un- those. T- yeah, those, yeah, those guys are cool. <laughs> they're really fucking chill. Uh, they tell you stories and stuff. Well, the one that doesn't kill you tells you stories. Well, Very you can, cool. But, well, the the one that the one that tries to kill you or does kill you initially, you um, don't you don't you repair them? Isn't that? Yeah, 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 yeah. You do. Yeah. Um, I think it's angles. That yeah, you I think repair. angles kills you. Yes, yes, yes. And then you repair angles and you become friends with angles, um, and it's really cool. Like, <laughs> uh, but I think there's something else kind of going on there. I don't want to call the game like revolutionary because like no. I don't like applying those things to media in that way. I agree. But I think that there's an argument, like a sort of um, like transhumanist argument going on, um, where. The next, the, the the great leap forward, in a sense, is a a digital or a virtual or a technological leap, in a sense, which is not an argument I'm necessarily on board with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is one that states, like, if first of all, that um, recognizing these alien others as fundamentally as human as anything else, or as sentient as anything else, is a very a compelling argument for me. Yeah. But it's also stating that, you know, the end of humans as we know them might mean the beginning of something else, a new form of life. Yeah, it was it, someone oh, I was oh, I was talking to uh, to my friend. I, I uh, met a friend from online today. Uh, my, my friend Leroy was in town um, and uh, and he stopped by and we, we got lunch. He was uh, around, got to meet my kids, which is uh, I don't know if that's a privilege or a uh, 
a difficult lunch. You'd have to ask, you'd have to ask Leroy. But like the um, the the one really cool thing about about like talking with him was uh, the fact that you know kind of realizing this um, uh, realizing this thing about so like in in Pennsylvania there are um, a num- well there's one specifically I live in Pennsylvania and there's there's one like particularly um, interesting town in Pennsylvania that everyone knows about called Centralia. Um, oh yeah, I'm aware of Centralia. I've listened to the dollop about Centralia. Okay, yeah, for sure. That's a <laughs> that's a that's a great that's a great introduction. Um, but so yeah, like the Centralia is like this crazy crazy story of like oh it's an underground mine it's on fire it's <laughs> like it's just a it's just a massively interesting story and the. The thing about Centralia is it is like they don't like you going there. They're like real mad if you show up. <laughs> uh, they don't they don't they don't take kindly to strangers. Um, but the other thing about Centralia is that like it's going to be burning for the next like I don't know a couple of decades underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to Leroy about it. I had I was under the misconception that it would be burning for quite a bit longer. Um, it turns out that's not the case. Okay. Um, what's actually true is it will be burning for you know like a decent amount of time. Nothing nothing. Nothing like otherworldly, uh, but you know, for a while. And uh, I think like the the fascinating thing about that, and what I was thinking about was like, because he brought up this other place, this uh, this sort of like hole in the in the former Soviet Union that is going to burn for the next like, you know, several centuries, if not millennia. Oh, that's a whoopsie daisy. It's it's a whoopsie daisy. But I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, it's actually kind of. And, I mean, maybe this is maybe this is silly, but like, you know, it's actually kind of like endearing in a certain way or like it helps to think about in a certain way that like there's going to be something after us that is sort of like existing in this world and you know still burning like it's Mm -hmm. it's just like not that it's not comforting that we caused it it's not comforting (laughs) that it's like you know it's something we did but what is comforting is that like it is it is a thing that is going to exist and um you know, we just kind of we, we may have produced it, but also like it'll outlive us, and that is cool. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's cool to think like once we're gone, there actually still is a planet. It doesn't just stop. I hope it doesn't develop sentience. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll enjoy burning. <laughs> Who knows? Horrible fire god of the deep. I, you know, uh, it's a good thing. Um, no, I pretty Lovecraftian. Yeah, it is extremely Lovecraftian, and uh, like a little less racist than Lovecraft, um, mm. which is which is good too. Um, <laughs> I mean, like that's the lowest bar to clear. I uh, I once taught uh, rats rats in the walls uh, to to a class uh, to a lit class I was teaching, and uh, it had been a while since I read it. Uh, well, actually, no, no, it was the first time I'd ever read it, and I didn't know about the cat's name um, in oh. that story. I'm sure I've told this story before. And uh, yeah, most of my most of my comments and most of my questions to them was so. Uh, how about that cat's name? <laughs> like, <laughs> what what yeah. do we all think of this? Um, so yeah, no, for sure. But yeah, no, it's it's Neuronomata definitely presents that. Like, uh, it's not anything that you can take a lot of pride in. Like the you know even the robots who are certainly I would say if there's a protagonist in Neuronomata, it's the robots. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of uh, apologize for taking so much time to just talk about Nier Automata. No, more people should be talking about it. Um, I, I never I never actually did a good job of um, covering it, so. But I, I, I mainly brought it up because I think it it's 
uh, following in a legacy of um, a certain approach to game design and game storytelling that the only other real place you see that mantle taken up today is like in the indie spaces and the alt spaces mm-hmm. um, and not just like the the weird shit and the depressing shit and like the <laughs> text stuff and whatever but I mean also not just twine game, how basically. it uh, or like, not just. Yeah, <laughs> not just twine games, but like how it you know marries uh, storytelling and plot um, to game design, to mm. characterization and character development, to theme, to symbolism. That's something yeah. you mainly see in indie games. No, that's a good point, and I think like you know in, in a lot of ways. So let me actually tie this into into a, uh, a question about your writing because like. I think one of the things that's stuck out to me about your writing on labor and like your writing on games in general is like the way that this um, the way that this like um, approach to let's say um, legibility in uh, in AAA games um, how that sort of reflects on their process of creation um, yeah and I wonder if you could say a little something about that. So legibility in terms of being able to parse a story or pick out themes or yeah and like and, and really like actually over determine those themes um, yeah as well. so I can't I can't be too specific here because I don't want to get anybody in trouble but um, <laughs> so I live in Montreal Montreal is a big uh, game development hub for the industry it is yeah um, more and more so yeah there's I could call some people out as to why that is but it has it has a lot to do with tax credits okay um that's a lot of it um and so I know people who work at companies like Ubisoft some of whom I spoke to for the piece you mentioned mm-hmm. um and I I have a friend who works there I actually have a couple of friends that work there uh and I'm really trying to be um as vague as possible because oh please yeah I'm not yeah, gonna yeah. push you don't worry um and I I've heard a lot of stories from them and they're both very smart very well educated very creative very insightful people um but there's only so much that they can do mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. because the the design documents are sort of thing a thing that's handed down to them okay and then they just have to make the game to the design document specifications and any management changes that might come you know, over the course of development. Um, and there are lots of issues with how, um, like, teams are structured in the company, or I think this is broadly true of the industry. Um, communication between teams, um, what is creatively allowed. Um, so, you know, there are cases where I've heard, you know, they wanted me to do this one way, and I knew that there was a better way that I could have done it, but if I had implemented it the way that I knew would be better, um, I would have been fired. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then it creates the situation where gamers will will seek someone out that they can single out and blame, or or a selection of people that they can single out and blame um, for something that they don't like. Um, and and a lot of the time, it's framed as you know a censorship issue or whatever. Um, and then what I saw a lot with Gamergate was that companies treat this because they don't want to take on the liability. Mm-hmm. So they'll just find a reason to cut their losses with the person who's being attacked. Yeah, sure. And there were plenty of cases of people who were writers, who were designers, who were community managers who lost their jobs. Um, I, I talked about a pretty um, infamous one from Nintendo, the Alice and Rap case. 
Oh, yes. You know, you know, that was great. Like, that was actually super helpful in the article. I totally forgot about that until I reread what you were doing. Yeah, so there's just tons of that kind of stuff. And I know a lot of developers who they have a lot of demands that are, you know, materialist economic demands um, about work-life balance and uh, payment and security, job security, just all kinds of stuff like that, um, that are just endemic problems in the industry. But a lot of them are also scared fucking shitless. Um, Like, I had a lot of people who spoke to me, but under strict condition of anonymity, because they are so afraid of first of all, of being blacklisted in the industry, of not being able to get a job again, yeah. but also of um, getting backlash. Because companies are, at this point, I think, pretty like wise to the fact that if gamers decide that they're going to wage war on some person, they can just pacify that, I, to, their, to their mind, pacify that group by just cutting their losses with that person. Yeah, There's no. nothing really to stop them from doing that. And that, like, that's absolutely something that happened with, and, and, you know, like, you hear about the Allison Rap thing, and, like, I remember people even defending after the fact, like, the fact that Nintendo fired her. Like, the yeah. the idea that, like, well, actually, she, like, she brought it on herself, or, like, actually, yeah. like, it was, it wasn't, like, it wasn't unjust. It was actually fine. Like, it was actually yeah. something that needed to happen. And, like, the internet can, I don't know, like, the internet can create its own narratives about about this stuff. I mean, you know, as as we all know. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I think, you know, uh, trying to imagine, trying to imagine being in that position is very difficult. Um, yeah. Insofar as it's, like, um, I'm trying to think how to say this, like, it's very hard to imagine because you are, um, you're stuck, like, um, I'm sorry, the baby is crying upstairs. Oh, uh, it's all right. <laughs> um, uh, it's very difficult because you are, you're imagining yourself as consumer and then you're also imagining yourself as suddenly um, a producer and not just a producer, but a producer that's being thrown under the bus. And the idea yeah. of, like, the idea of trying to parse that, right? Of trying yeah. to say like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna pretend I'm in her position. Um, it, it's just so difficult, and like I, I would imagine, like, basically impossible to to really truly um, do justice to this idea that like, okay, now you're now you're in the situation. You've done the right thing. You've done your job, and the company has decided that even though you're good at your job, you're better as a scapegoat because anyone is better yep. as a scapegoat. Like you're right. not you're not an individual. You're part of the. Nintendo Collective. Yeah. Um, and I guess, like, that's something that... I'm glad you said that, because that's something that, like, I've been trying to parse out since I've read your article, which is, like, what is the benefit... What is sort of, like, the existential benefit of dealing with... Um, uh, uh, of doing a um, an indie game as opposed to, like, a, a AAA game? And right. I think, like, it's not existential. It's not even artistic. It, it's simply just, like recognizing that one gives you agency and the other it's doesn't. dreadfully materialist yeah. it's dreadfully materialist and I, I would even say that there are a lot of like part of the reason there were so many indies or alternative developers who just kind of stopped doing it part of it was because I mean it's one thing when you're an employee and you get scapegoated by your company but at least there is like at least some um, illusion of institutional support um, when you're an indie there's really nothing um and I like I don't even necessarily think we have the time to get into the economics of like the um, the indie games market 
and um, like the the royalty structures of uh, like how these companies will distribute their games on like uh, streaming platforms and stuff like that. Um, like like the Steam the Steam model, which is now just kind of being turned into like the streaming model that's going to take over generally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing as like the Xbox marketplace and all that kind of stuff. Those are all precursors to this. Um, so like, I think that was part of the issue too, is that we lost a lot of people, a lot of really bright people because it's just like, why would you take this for yeah. games? Like, why would you live like this? It's, it's not just, um, painful and hurtful and, and sometimes really scary and dangerous. It's also just really absurd. Right. Um, even if you love the thing and you believe in the medium and you think it can do some cool stuff, like this doesn't feel worth it. Well, and it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a certain kind of like, uh, uh I, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of like almost, um, bureaucratic hell where like, not only are you dealing with the sense of, okay, we're, uh, we have to we have to like produce a good product, but you're also dealing with this idea of like okay, fans expect a certain thing. I mean, take the take the Tifa controversy over Final Fantasy mm-hmm. VII. Like, oh yeah, great, let's do that. Yeah, I mean, let's get right th- into very it. Very briefly, anyway. Um, but, you know, I mean, like, it's not just about producing a product; it's about fulfilling a particular image mm-hmm. of what people think about that particular character. And yeah. like that is that's weird. Like that's that's tough as like a creator, as a talented oh, person. I can't imagine dealing with that. It's really, really strange and surreal. Um, and it's it's like a huge bummer for me. Um, but I, I have this relationship with basically all enter every aspect of the entertainment business is just like fucking depressing to me. Um, everything from games to comedy to film to music is just a nightmare. Um and, I mean, I kind of sort of quasi-answer your question about legibility. Yeah. I think that there's a lot going on where the actual labor that's making your games are, for the most part, not really the creative voice of those games. That, that These are teams of maybe hundreds of people um, that are, are tasked with creating something that has this broad appeal but will still appeal to a core of gamers and, and satisfy like their id um but like is also something that's gonna like continue generating revenue um like it's they're they're producing a product essentially and i mean in neoliberalism i've talked about this a little bit on in my own independent writing about um thq nordic how they can talk out of both sides of their mouths a little bit i mean that's a great yeah i mean obviously it's super good topic yeah so like this idea that like games the games industry wants to be seen it, it wants to be endlessly malleable like any any capitalist wants to be able to adapt to anything that's out there yeah um, so you get like the pandering to this reactionary core of gamers who are just this like totally simulated community that was just invented by corporations um, and who I very strongly identify with it for a whole like just hot mess of socioeconomic reasons. Um, But you also want to be able to have, like, broad mass appeal, appeal to little kids, appeal to, you know, um, people who are just idly playing on their phone, you know, at the airport or whatever. Um, So you want to... And it creates this really weird tension because then you have the same company that gamers are defending on the grounds of, 
well, there are all these not real gamers who want to play like phone games. And then what they're ignoring is that the company is making a deliberate decision to like um, allocate a bunch of funds to their mobile department because right. mobile is incredibly popular and lucrative. And so, yeah, um, you basically and, get to like get the hardcore gamers in by saying one thing and then actually sort of yeah. like, with the other hand do the opposite. Yeah. THQ is like a really extreme example because it's like, oh, we had an AMA on like a site where there's allegedly a bunch of child porn. <laughs> Oops. Whoopsie. Like, so like you can do that, make those m- mistakes repeatedly. Um, and then you can just like apologize and say like, it's my first day or whatever. <laughs> and just keep doing that. And it won't matter at all ever. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like any, there are any other company in that way, you know? Yeah. And, no. and, and what and you I get mean, is you, yeah, you can't get a real story. You can't get a real vision or a, uh, uh, um, articulable, coherent narrative out of that doesn't that doesn't happen. Well, and it also makes sense. And I, and I've kept you too long. We'll, we'll we'll wrap up. But like I think like the one thing that I would say, and and I'll let you have last word. Then is like the going back to Near Automata. It explains why the kind of like single author or like the the vision of the director or whatever, like the visionary director, holds so much sway mm-hmm. in video games because it is like. It's the only way that you're going to get it's the only way you're going to get a vision. And like, yeah, yeah, it does completely screw over all the people working under it. Yeah, it's not great. Like, I don't know. I don't know what Yoko Taro's uh, labor practices are. But I mean, like, you know, Miyazaki is not a great, you know, from software is not a great place to work. Um, Kojima is notoriously a bad boss, like stuff like that. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they produce these things because they get famous enough that some studio will say, "Okay, like we yeah. we want a Suda game or we want a Yoko Taro game," and like mm-hmm. at that point, it's not like it really is an auteur or, or whatever. Like that's you know overused theory, but like yeah, it's the closest you're going to get to a single vision in a AAA studio. It's the closest you're going to get to something like the weird indie games uh, that you know, people ignore and, and, and malign, but are kind of doing the same thing on a much, much smaller and more sustainable scale. Right. I, I would add to that, that I think that games in general are group efforts, their team efforts. Um, and the bigger you get, the bigger, like the bigger the game, the bigger the team. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and some of them are really tremendous accomplishments that are a lot of people working together. I don't think it, I don't think that, creating a great game necessitates auteurism. I just think you have to have enough people together who are passionate and enthusiastic about sharing a vision and who want to see it come to life and who have the resources to do so. That doesn't have to be an exploitative relationship. Under current conditions, it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially because the way auteurism works is it's meant to, um, like, split the, the labor pool yeah. by creating capitalists out of a few really exceptional voices, um, which is really, really unfortunate. Um, but it doesn't like have like there's nothing that absolutely necessitates necessitates that great games have to be made in this way, that, that, that art has to come through this much suffering. I don't think that's true. Um, but it is like really complicated um, because at the same time, like you have all of these independent creators who are like laying this foundation of like what the next trends are going to be in the future, like aesthetic, tra- like what what all of these auteurs are kind of paying attention to. 
Um, and they have zero institutional support, like really whatsoever. Yeah. And a lot of the time they just sort of fall off the face of the earth. Um, it's, it's a weird thing. I do think that games are, are these interesting things in just because like to make one function, you do generally need a, a group of people who can get it to work. But, um, you know, under, I guess, capitalism and the way the business is structured, um, it's this very top-down relationship where the vast majority of the labor is just sort of unseen. It's just kind of erased. Mm -hmm. There's even big problems with crediting in games. Yeah. Um, And the only thing you see at the top is, like, the brand of the company and maybe the auteur. Which is, of course, the the brand of the company. Yeah. Yeah. Which is to say, like, you know, whatever, whatever auteurs with whatever company, they make that very well known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just becomes kind of synonymous after a while. Of course, yeah. But then you get you get people like Keita Takahashi who get just sick of it all, mm-hmm. and who try to find some sort of outlet. Um, you know, who is somebody who created this juggernaut brand, uh, Katamari Damacy, mm-hmm. and who doesn't own it anymore, mm-hmm. um, and who like left. I think it was um, Namco. Yeah, I think it was That's Namco. Namco. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who left? in part because like he wasn't in control of this thing that he made anymore and they were they like i think like the last one that came out like had really nothing to do with him mm. um, oh what the re-roll yeah, yeah yeah oh i didn't know that i don't think I, he's really involved in it anymore it's like not his thing anymore That's so it's like, disappointing yeah so there's all this stuff with ip law too and and how companies sort of um i think see like uh Game designers and indie games and and all that stuff is sort of like a form of primitive accumulation, and then they just kind of enclose around whatever works and then just endlessly try to reproduce it. Now that's an article. Um, <laughs> well, I, I assume it's on the list. <laughs> well, I I would be keeping you. I think we've already been talking more than an hour. Um, yeah. Uh, and I would be keeping you even further. Oh, we're just at about an hour. People love uh, people love shows that are an hour. Um, yeah, is what I is what I'm to understand, and so I'm going to keep you that. Um, I didn't get to my big theory about how everyone on this fucking planet is a gamer. Oh yeah, yeah, no, do that quick. <laughs> give, me, give me your five minute elevator pitch. I'm like I'm some guy in an elevator, and the elevator has stopped, and um, I say, ugh, I'm late to my meeting uh, to explain to someone my unified theory of uh, gaming and how Twitter is not about gaming, and now you have to convince me that I'm wrong. Yeah, so I mean, like, there's this whole thing in Twitter, on Twitter, and particularly in a, like, some Twitter left spaces, which I find really bizarre that anyone would even care enough to have an opinion, um, that like games are inherently reactionary, that gamers are inherently reactionary, and that somehow we are um, a totally uh, discrete group of people uh, apart from all of that. And I would say. You're not only are you wrong and a moron, but you're lying to yourself and to the rest of the world. Because as long as you're on Twitter, you're a fucking gamer. Yeah. If you're on Facebook, you're a gamer. If you're on Instagram, you're a gamer. And what I mean by that is that it's not just about actually playing video games and liking them. I don't give a shit if you like video games or not. If the last game you played was like Pong, it doesn't matter to me. If you are engaging in this totally gamified, like, simulacrum of human interaction where everything is incentivized with these tokens and numbers and, and clout and brands and all that shit, guess what? You're a gamer. You're, you're gamifying human interaction. Um, 
gaming is just like a reflection of the cost benefit analysis that we're all constantly doing in every interaction we have in the society that we live in. Like, especially if you happen to work in media where those things, where social capital can very easily translate into actual capital. Yeah. So like, don't give me this spiel about how you're anti-gamer. <laughs> no, you're a gamer. You're a gamer. Just accept that you're a fucking gamer. Okay. Well, I believe you All now, right. and I'm going to go to my meeting and tell them I've changed my entire mind, and uh, Twitter's <laughs> gaming now. No, I, yeah. no, it is, though. It's, I, it's the shittiest version of gaming. I agree. I think, like, it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of a, uh, a piece a friend read a long time ago before I was ever even thinking about writing about games. He took a games as literature course uh, when he was in his MA in Maryland, and the, uh, one of the books he read was about, um, basically about, like, this sense of... Um, Huh. the fact that in any given game you're not actually chasing any of the things that you're chasing in the game, like you're not trying to get the good sword or you're not tr- actually trying to get yeah, the rare yeah. drop or whatever, um, you're chasing a an ephemeral thing that you'll never catch, which is the idea of being satisfied once you get them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is 100% what Twitter is. No, that's it. That's it. It's not people trying to like build coalitions or spread information or any of that fucking horseshit. It's about trying to win for the day. Yeah. It's about trying to win and trying to get the biggest numbers and trying to have the best take. And it's full of these grifters who are constantly trying to have the hottest take all the time. But it's also full of people, include I include myself in this, who dunk on these people oh, yeah. in part no, because here. you want the attention. You want to feel like you've won something by getting people's attention and seeing it uh, represented as a number. Like there is, it releases endorphins in your brain the same way that like, you know, finishing a a particularly hard quest in a game might do that. Yeah. Yeah. It has the exact same chemical uh, consequence for you. So like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that anyone is truly anti-gamer. If you're on Twitter, if you're really anti-gamer, log off. (laughs) No, truly. No, don't tell anyone to log off. Everyone has to stay (laughs) logged on or else we die. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just, like, it's one of those things where, like, within the space of games, I didn't really even get to talk about, like, the the indie shit I really like as much. Maybe I'll come well, Come on back. again. We'll put it under the we'll yeah, yeah. paywall. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, like, you can sort of, um, within the context of, like, the conditions you're living in, like, try to make things a little bit less shitty and, and have utopian long-term ideas and stuff, but... I don't think it helps to sort of deny the situation that you're in mm-hmm, and to, mm-hmm. to try to act like you're different or better already. You just come off as smug. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I so I totally agree. And I don't think you came off as smug. I thought you came off as very, very incisive. Um, please come back. Will you come back to do a, to do a behind the paywall episode? I would love absolutely, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just let me yell and swear and yeah. just do it. Uh, yeah, just I, I could God. talk for another two hours. I have so many grievances. All right, we're gonna do it. We're gonna schedule it. Um, just a long, prolonged <laughs> scream. Just one long scream just a for bunch an of hour. <laughs> um, well, uh, Lana, thank you so much for being on. Where can people find your work again? Uh, okay, so uh, you can find my writing, um, my independent writing. You can find it sufficientlyhuman.com. You can find I'm kind of all over the internet, but m- most. Uh, most of the stuff that I write freelance now is for rhizome.org. Okay. Um, but I've written for some other places, including like Vice, which sometimes people yell at me about because apparently I run I, uh, run, I run Vice. Write for where you want to write. I, I, I hate that. Yeah. If you're freelance, you just take the assignments you're given. 
Yeah, no, I've been called like crypto fashion stuff because I wrote for Vice one time. No, you're not ready uh, for Quillette. Like, no, that'll <laughs> not until they. That pay would you. be funny. No, oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> I can absolutely be bought. Um, uh, yeah, so I've written for a bunch of places, but mainly it's it's Rhizome and my own site, and you can also catch me on Twitch once a week. Sometimes it's Sunday. Sometimes it's Wednesday. Probably this week it's going to be Wednesday. Mm. I'm at the Freak Museum there. Um, and I have my Patreon, which is just Patreon slash my name. Cool. All right. Well, come on again. We'll, we'll schedule it uh, when I after I sleep. Um, okay. And lovely talking to you. This has been really, really fun. Uh, so you too. We'll Thanks so soon. much for having me. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely.